0: Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of the 1927 Dole Air Race, an incredible early flying competition that pitted some of the bravest aviators in America against the Pacific Ocean. The idea was to fly from Oakland, California to the islands of Hawaii to collect a massive cash prize from the Dole Pineapple Company. Very few people made it, and the story is unbelievable. This episode of the Dorkomotive podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. So this is a really incredible story that comes from the late 1920s in the United States when the aviation industry was exploding like so many other industries were until the Great Depression would come just a few years later. But when we talk about the aviation industry in 1927, it was really only about two decades old. Remember, we can go back to 1903 and the Wright brothers flying in Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, making that first ever heavier than air flight that was manned by another human being. And what happened after that was a ton of businesses springing up, a ton of manufacturers of airplanes springing up, and then, of course, people challenging themselves to fly these airplanes over different lengths and distances from different point-to-point trips. Of course, in 1927, Charles Lindbergh flew solo across the Atlantic Ocean, which really opened up the world in so many ways to the idea of long-distance aviation. The amount of publicity that Lindbergh received after making that trip and the fact he became kind of an international superhero brought a lot of money into the aviation world and specifically into the contest that would follow over the ensuing decades of people setting distance and speed records. One of the guys that was kind of enthralled by what happened over with Charles Lindbergh was a man named James Dole. Dole was the son of the founder of the Hawaii Pineapple Company, which would later become the Dole Company that we know today. Dole was an incredibly wealthy man. He was somebody that loved the idea of aviation, and he came up with this idea for a giant prize for the first person or people that could fly from the continental United States to Hawaii. Uh, Obviously, that's where his company was based. He was trying to both kind of raise uh, the profile of the company, and he was a rich guy flaunting his wealth, which was, as we all know, in the 1920s kind of a very popular thing to do. So when he initially put out the idea for this contest, for this challenge to be put ahead, he was figuring it was going to be one person would attempt it or two people would attempt it. So many people were interested, it turned into a race, which would become known as the 1927 Dole Air Race. And the purpose of this was going to be awesome. It was going to make more heroes, this time on the western side of the country, flying across the Pacific Ocean from California to the islands of Hawaii. Well, there's a couple things that we need to talk about here. First off, this race becomes uh, what can only be described as an incredible tragedy. It is uh, mismanaged. The people involved have no idea what they're getting into. And to top it all off, it's actually pointless because what they are trying to do has actually already been done. And that's really where we need to start telling the story. We don't need to start telling the story in 1927 when the Dole Air Race happens. We need to start telling the story in 1925 when the first nearly successful flight, from the continental United States to Hawaii was almost completed in the air. It technically was completed, but frankly, that's where this story starts and that's where we have to go back to 1925 and a man named Commander John Rogers and the intrepid five people that flew with him on a military mission that left the coast of California. So, it makes sense that really when we begin telling the story, we're going to start with a military story because, after all, uh, when we talk about the development of aviation, the military was really front and center on so much of it. So, uh, in 1925, Commander John Rogers decides that um, he is going to champion the cause of trying to fly from the continental United States to Hawaii. And he's going to go through all the military planning. They make this a pretty big mission, they actually station ships every couple of hundred miles over the route that he's supposed to be taking from California to Hawaii. In the event something happens, they can also relay radio messages. There's a whole bunch of reasons uh, and infrastructure built into this plan. They take what is known as a PN-9 seaplane, which is one of the biggest planes in the world at this time. The thing's massive. Um, in, in terms of 1920s aircraft, it's very big. Uh, it floats on the ground, and the reason it floats on the water, I should say, is because a plane of this size would never be able to use a conventional runway at this time in history. did not have enough... Uh, length in any runways to get enough of a running start to actually get a plane this size off the ground. When you put it in the water, however, you have effectively an infinite runway. You can build up the speed and then you can take off and you can fly. So the idea is uh, they're going to leave San Francisco, the San Francisco area. They are going to um, fly this distance unbroken. They have the plane Uh, loaded up with absolutely as much fuel as it could take. Um, This is a plane that flies with a top speed of about 115 miles an hour, and judging by the distance, they figure it should take right about 24 hours to get there, between 24 and 26 hours. They do the math, and they understand that it's going to be close on fuel, but if everything that they believe is going to work correctly works um then it should be okay they should not basically not have a whole lot of fuel to spare but they should be able to fly to hawaii and land in the ocean and celebrate their great and um kind of unbelievable turn of events they have done something they have conquered this this void of the pacific ocean between the continental united states and hawaii so they end up leaving san francisco They fly about 1,800 miles, and one of the big miscalculations that these guys made was that they figured the winds would become tailwinds at some point that would help them save fuel and help push the plane along. Uh, That never happened. So they fly about 1,800 miles, and then they run out of gas. And so normally, if you're over the ocean in a plane and you run out of gas, this is a horrendous turn of events and something you don't survive. But remember, they're in a seaplane. So they run out of gas, uh, they land the plane in the water, and they kind of go, okay, well, we've landed, uh, fire up this wind, uh, wind generator-powered radio, we'll tell our pals where we are, and the ships will come get us. Uh, this was a problem, because when they landed, they broke the wind generator portion of their radio set, and they had absolutely no communication with anybody. So uh, the plane is floating in the ocean, there's no way to communicate with anyone, and um, there's no way that the ships uh, at this point can find them. Now, yes, we said that they had stationed these ships every couple hundred miles apart. Well, let's go back and do some math there. Uh, the, the ocean is uh, almost infinite in its vastness, right? So if you're going to put a ship 200 miles away from somebody that splashes down and what is in the face of the ocean, uh, like a, a grain of sand on the beach, and then you're going to tell the ship to go find them, that's hard enough as it is, let alone having no clue where they actually might be. So when they don't arrive in Hawaii, the military decides to kick in on a search and rescue operation. Commander Rogers is a, a smart guy, a brave guy, and he did pack extra supplies. So when they take stock of what they are, remember it's Rogers and five other guys uh, on this plane, radio operators, mechanics, engineers, they got a whole kind of crew of people inside this now boat on the ocean. So they take stock, and this is a true story. So they, they look around and they look at their provisions. So they have 12 ham sandwiches 10 quarts of water, 3 pounds of hardtack, and 6 pounds of canned corned beef, which one can only imagine the horrendousness of canned corned beef in 1927. So after the first day, um, nobody has made contact, nobody is in sight, and so they've kind of moved into action. And they, these planes, were they used like a fabric outer shell. Like they weren't made of metal on the outside. They were actually made of fabric. So the guys tear a bunch of the fabric down, take some of the wood out of the plane, and they make sails. So they make sails and they are factoring and they're using kind of uh, the sun and the stars and a compass basically to try to uh, move in the direction they believe Hawaii is in. They are known within three to four hundred miles of Hawaii, but they can't see it. It's way too far away. And they're trying to basically sail their way there. So by the second day, they have run out of food. <laughs> so it took the six guys uh, exactly one full day and part of the second day to eat the ham sandwiches. They went, then went to dive into the corned beef. And as it turns out, the corned beef was was not consumable. Uh, as it was described in the government reports, it was indigestible. I'm assuming that means somebody tried to eat it, became ill, or simply yacked it up before they were able to choke it down. So, Rogers and the guys are out of ham sandwiches, uh, almost out of water. They have uh, the heart attacks gone. They have nothing to eat. So... They're using their sails, but they're finding that the they're really having no directional control of this thing. Yes, it's blowing in some direction. So then they start to take the metal floorboards of the plane out, and they make uh, the floorboards into what they call leeboards. So they use these leeboards on the side of the body of the aircraft to kind of direct it and try to counteract the drift from the wind. So... This is actually kind of where it gets serious because these guys are out there for almost 10 days floating in the ocean. And the only reason that they really didn't suffer any worse than they otherwise did was because there was a big rainstorm that blew over them on like the eighth day. And so the eighth day they were able to capture enough water in various vessels and jugs and whatever else they could use to capture it um, out of this rainstorm, which I'm sure you know, created a bunch of waves, which made that part of the ride unpleasant, but they were able to get fresh water. They drink the rainwater. And then on the late in the ninth day, basically on the 10th day, up pops a submarine. And yes, the United States submarine uh, Navy found them with a submarine. Um, They were sailing at basically two knots an hour towards Hawaii. They were moving in the right direction, um, but they probably would have uh, been dead if they had Uh, continued on that attack because they would have run out of water and dehydrated and probably gone crazy and jumped in the ocean. So the submarine finds them, the submarine tows them in, and their big, you know, 475 horsepower twin Packard engine uh, seaplane gets towed to the island. And while it was not considered a successful reaching of the island, they actually did make it because the submarine towed them into port. So that is the first attempt anybody ever made to get across from Oakland, or from, I should say from mainland, the United States, to Hawaii. And it didn't make a lot of headlines. The, the harrowing story of uh, their survival made some headlines. But other than that, it was a military thing. They tried and they kind of failed, but they knew it was kind of public, knew it was a way to advance technology. So we fast forward now to May of 1927, and that is when Charles Lindbergh uh, makes his famous flight across the Atlantic Ocean. And the effect of this is immeasurable in modern life. I really don't think it's possible for us to understand how famous a guy like Charles Lindbergh would instantly become in a world where it was really tough to become instantly famous. This was still, you know, kind of vaudeville era. People were regionally famous or, you know, movies were out. Uh, Movies, of course, were growing, so you had movie stars and stuff. But Charles Lindbergh became instantaneously this global phenomenon, one of the bravest men who had ever lived. And so... Uh, That once again spurs on this idea of the Western conquering of the Pacific Ocean, so to speak. It's not flying all the way across the Pacific, but flying from mainland United States to Hawaii becomes once again a big deal. So we now go to June 28th of 1927, once again before the Dole Air Race, and we have to talk about an airplane called the Bird of Paradise flown by Lieutenant Lester J. Maitland, who was the pilot, and Albert F. Hagenberger, who was the navigator. Hagenberger and Maitland were both military officers. They had been studying this issue of long-distance flight, and once Lindbergh did it, they went to their superiors, their commanding officers, and they said, listen, we've plotted this out, we've planned this out. Maitland was actually uh, an incredibly decorated pilot, uh, an ace, if you will, in World War I, and Hagenberger was, uh, had led the military navigational services, if you will. So you had two, uh, the best and the brightest, if you will, two kind of if there was such a thing as a top gun uh, in the 1920s, uh, it was these two guys. So on June 27th or June 28th, 1927, they go to Oakland, California, and they had flown their plane, which was a Fokker C2, which is, again, a fairly uh, robust, a larger plane, if you will. Uh, They had flown it as a a checkout flight, um, kind of it across the United States to make sure everything was good. The reason that they went out of Oakland, and the reason that this Dole race will take place out of Oakland, California, is because Oakland had the longest runway in the world at that point. And this is a dirt runway, but it was 7,200 feet long. And to have a very big, heavy plane to get off an earthen runway, you needed a lot, a lot, a lot of space, and Oakland had more at that point in history than anybody else. They had 1,120 gallons of fuel. They carried 40 gallons of oil to oil the engine. And again, this is for a 24-hour flight. So they have over 1,000 gallons of fuel. They have 40 gallons of oil. And they plan on making a 2,425-mile trip from Oakland, California to Hawaii. They take off. And you know what they do? At 629 a.m., On the 29th of June, 1927, they successfully land their airplane, thereby becoming the first people to successfully navigate this trip from Oakland, California to Hawaii. Well, Dole had already set this race up. Dole was already soliciting this this event, and he was like, oh, man, okay, so we'll just pitch this so you can be the first civilian person to make this trip. And, again, when we we talk about the, the, the flight of... Maitland and Hagenberger, this could also be its own whole episode, but they were really, their their talent and skill as pilots is, is what saved their bacon. They lost their radio, they lost their compass, and they used dead reckoning to fly over the open ocean and land at the right place in Hawaii. And in so many ways, this was more difficult than what Charles Lindbergh had done. Because, and I'm not diminishing Charles Lindbergh's feat, But think of it this way. When Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic, you can't miss the United States of America. Even if you don't land in the right city, you cannot miss the continent of North America. When you fly from Oakland into the open ocean, it takes about one to two degrees of mistakes in your navigation. One to two degrees of mistakes in your navigation, and you are going to be drowning in the ocean in a plane with no fuel. And to do it without a compass, to do it without a radio, and to do it with dead reckoning using the stars, the sun, the wind, um, it is astonishing that these guys pull it off. So they got the job done. They are awarded um, the McKay Trophy and the Distinguished Flying Cross, which the Distinguished Flying Cross had only been given out three times in American history at this point. Again, we're only talking about an industry that's 24 years old, but... Uh, they became recipients of the flying cross. They got to go to the uh, they got to go to the White House. Whole whole deal. So you think to yourself, well, that kind of diminishes the whole idea of this race. But here's the problem: it gets worse. So again, before the race, this now on August 12, nineteen twenty seven. I'm sorry, August 12, twenty seven was the date of the Dole race. This is on July fourteenth of nineteen twenty seven. Two guys named Emery Bronte and Ernie Smith take a Travel Air 5000 monoplane, a style of plane you'll be hearing more about in the not-too-distant future of the show. They are airmail pilots. Smith is a very experienced navigator. And this will be the second time that they attempt this. Now, these guys are doing it for no money. They're doing it for no other reason to prove that it can be done. And in the great spirit of, you know, American adventure, they're going to try to fly from Oakland to Hawaii. 34 years old is Smith, 29 years old is Bronte. Six weeks after Lindbergh's flight, six weeks basically before the Dole race, they take off. They get about an hour away, and the altimeter in the airplane is malfunctioning. And at the same time, one of the windshields gets struck in their plane and it becomes distorted. And as weird as it is to say, It was impossible to make this trip with a windshield that wasn't perfect because you needed to look through it for your navigation. And if there was a distortion in the windshield that would distort your ability to properly navigate by constellations or by positioning of different things that you're using a sextant for and everything else, um, you couldn't make the trip. So they were land. And there was about 10,000, 20,000 people that saw them off the first time. And they come back and everyone kind of scoffed at them. They were only gone an hour and you gave up and you came back. So they make another attempt. They fix, the, they fix the altimeter, they fix the airplane, and they take off. So as they leave, they're basically out over the ocean, getting out over the ocean, and the radio quits. And they decide at this point that they're going to go ahead anyway. So an amazing twist of this story is that they had carrier pigeons with them. So part of their safety strategy was to release these carrier pigeons every couple of hundred miles with a note that the carrier pigeon would fly back. And I am not an expert in birds, I don't know how long it would take a carrier pigeon to fly a couple hundred miles, but I guess the first one probably made it back to land. But when you're 6, 8, a 1, 15, 1,800 miles into nowhere, that carrier pigeon, he's shark food. He doesn't know it yet, but that carrier pigeon is going to end up in the mouth of, uh, in the mouth of Jaws before, uh, before he knows it. So they are making their trip using dead reckoning um, the old-fashioned way with no radio. And all of a sudden, the engines start to run badly. So the pilot, Bronte, decides he's going to have to get this thing down underneath the clouds to figure out what's going on and find out what's 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 what, because they can't see anything. Uh, they're over the open ocean. He gets very low to the ocean, and uh, basically whatever was happening, the engines cleared up, started running really well. So he pulls up, decides, okay, I guess we were, thought we were low on gas. Apparently we're not. So they go back to altitude, and they're flying, you know, four to 5,000 feet here. And they're back up in altitude and they're ripping along, you know, at about 120 miles an hour as a plane would run at that point. And the idea was they were trying to make Oahu. That was the goal of their flight, to go from Oakland to Oahu. And so, in order to do that, they actually flew north of Maui. Had they actually flown over Maui, they would have been able to land on Maui, but they flew north of it to try to make it to Oahu. They ran out of gas. Now, When you run out of gas in a little tiny plane in 1920, it's not like running out of gas in a 747 or in a fighter jet or something where it's just going to plummet out of the sky. They're actually able to make a dead stick landing into the jungle on the island of Molokai. And so guess what? Smith and Bronte uh, find a soft spot in the jungle, take their little plane and fly it into into the weeds and into the trees, and they walk away 25 hours and 37 minutes after they left and only 60 miles short of their goal of Oahu, they had completed the trip. 1925, guys tried it and floated their way in. 1927, a military plane did it. And then now, a mere month basically before the Dole Air Race, civilians have made the trip. Kind of negating any sort of uh, record-breaking that this Dole Air Race could produce, it's already been done. But the money's been spent. The money's been committed. We'll get into all that in a few minutes. But I wanted to set this up to let you know that when this event happens and the incredible senseless loss of life that continues to happen during it, it is being done for absolutely no reason because the trip has been made. Now, Bronte and Smith were kind of instantly famous, but for a very short time because of the fact that everyone knew the Dole race was coming. And yes, these guys did it. They never really got the proper at least in my estimation, the proper credit for what they did because the dole race and the publicity machine around it really kind of overshadowed their accomplishment. But you're basically talking about a couple of guys that were, uh, one guy, you know, Smith was a reserve pilot, um, rather Bronte was a reserve pilot. Smith was a, you know, an active duty guy in the, in the Navy. Uh, Smith flew the airmail. And, you know, these guys just absolutely kind of gutted it i mean they gutted it out and they did it and they survived and they lived and again using their smarts and their guile and their experience were able to do something that well nobody thought possible so now we know now we know the backstory of what happened before the dole air race of 1927 it is now time to talk about the race itself how it's set up who the people involved are and just how bad it all really went So it took at least, I should say at most, five days after Charles Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic Ocean for James Dole to decide he was going to put the money up to create what was the originally the Dole kind of challenge and then became the Dole Air Race. And the, the money was huge for the time. $35,000 to the first plane to make the trip, $10,000 to the second plane. And $35,000 at the time was about equivalent to a half million dollars now, give or take a little bit. Uh, So $10,000, about a third of that. And $10,000 would basically buy you a new airplane during this time, and a nice new airplane, one that had uh, the right engine, the right engineering, one that came from an established firm as opposed to one of the many backyard manufacturers at the time. So as he makes this announcement, as I said earlier, he was figuring, you know, someone's going to commit to it and say, yes, on this date, I'm going to try to do this. Well, what ended up happening was a huge response from, all over the country. Uh, this was a country that was obsessed with aviation. This was a country that was just in, enthralled with this new industry and all these different aircraft manufacturers and engine manufacturers and Curtis Wright and the Wright brothers. I mean, rather, Glenn Curtis, the Wright brothers. Uh, we can go right down the list. Guys like Langley that had been trying to uh, conquer man flight, still involved in the industry. So, so many people had put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and paid the uh, I think it was a $10, $100 entry fee or something like that, that uh, he decided to make it a race. And he put an entry deadline on it of August 8th. And so when August 8th rolled around, there had been 33 kind of inquiries into competing in the event, and there were 15 people that had actually paid the money to compete in the Dole air race. And these 15 people um, were from all walks of life. We're talking rich people. We're talking, in one case, a school teacher. We're talking um, guys that flew in the what they called the flying circuses back then, which were barnstorming air shows. We know what a barnstorming pilot is, right, the guys that would go town to town and put on shows in their biplanes. Well, a couple of the pilots that participated or tried to in the dual air race were from that style of, uh, of competition. One of the things we need to stop and talk about here before we go any further is – the absolute and utter ignorance of pretty much every single person that had signed up outside of a scant handful. And we'll talk about those people when we get there, but outside of a scant handful of the competitors, the ignorance of the people involved is going to cost many, many lives. And the idea that a guy who flew his biplane through the open doors of a barn was also qualified to fly uh, a similar, if not the same plane uh, thousands of miles across the open ocean um Well, you can call it bravery, you can call it guts, you can call it chasing the dollar, but ultimately it was the money that all these people were after. And a few of the more notable airplanes that we're going to talk about in this contest were staked by other people. They were not flown by their owners. In fact, the owners said, hey, I want to make a pile of money. Uh, Would you want to participate in this race? And I'll cut you in for X amount of the profit. So August 8th rolls around. We have our 15 entries, and immediately tragedy begins to surround this event. On August 10th, a guy named George Covell flying a plane with a man named R.S. Wagner uh, had a plane called the Tremaine. It was a Tremaine Hummingbird was the name of the plane. And I don't expect anybody to know what these things look like, but the only description I can give you is imagine just the littlest, rinky dinkest looking little airplane, something that makes a Cessna look like a Boeing. Uh, It makes a Cessna look like a 737 or a 747 or whatever. But these are, I mean, they're death trap looking things. And as much as I love old airplanes, I love seeing them in museums, I would never get out of the electric chair to get into any of the things that were flown, even the good planes that were flown in this event. So August 10th, George Covell, R.S. Wagner, uh, flying a plane called the Spirit of John Rogers. Remember John Rogers, of course, our hero from that first attempt um, to get across the Pacific Ocean where he floated his plane almost all the way to Hawaii. They flew into a cliff and they were dead. Uh, They were dead flying a test flight um, around the area in California where the race was to be started. They went out in the fog, had no real navigational beacons, had no real idea what they were around as far as the geography. And they flew their plane straight into a cliff. Um, it plummeted 100 feet, so to the ground, and they were they were dead by the time it got there. August 11th, Captain Argus Ar- Arthur Rogers took a plane called the Angel of Los Angeles out. Twin engine, big plane, big high horsepower machine. The twin engine planes here were the most impressive ones that were going to be involved in this uh, contest. Most of these are just single engine, what we would call monoplanes with a single wing. Uh, Rogers' plane was not that. It was a biplane with a couple of big honking engines on it. And he was flying it around the Los Angeles area, again, as a test flight, getting himself warmed up, getting himself uh, more confident and comfortable. And the plane fell from the sky. He tried to parachute out of it. Unfortunately, uh, apparently the plane struck him when he was trying to jump out of the plane. And so Arthur Rogers also dead before the race even began. And this speaks to the nature of life in 1927. The deaths of both Covell, Wagner, and now Rogers um, didn't dissuade anybody from doing this, didn't get the public to say, man, we probably shouldn't do this. In fact, it made people more excited to see it. It raised the danger level. It raised the intrigue level. And in the world we live in now, 100 years later, 93 years later, if you will, uh, that's not how things work anymore. If you're having an event and multiple people died in preparation of that event days ahead of when it was supposed to start, not only would the event be canceled, the event organizers would be admonished and uh, you know would be yelled at and or ostracized in society. But in 1927, the value of human life was very different. And I'd, I'd argue that it's, it's, it's different all the way up until after World War II. We start to look at the value of human life differently after World War II. But in 1927, these are just some guys with airplanes that were crashing and dying. And boy, I wonder if anybody else is going to crash and die. And maybe I should buy a ticket to see if that is going to happen. We talk about one of the other teams here. Now, this is not a team that suffered problems before the race. But we talk about the preparation, the attitude, the outlook, the hubris of the people competing in this event. An aircraft called the Miss Doran serves as a great example of this. The Miss Doran was crewed by a man named Mar- Manly Lawling. He was the navigator. The flyer was Augie Pedler, and Pedler is one of those barnstorming pilots I talked to you about, and a woman named Mildred Doran. And Mildred Doran was a fifth-grade teacher from Michigan who had a relationship with a guy that owned the Lincoln Petroleum Company, which would later become known as Citgo. And this relationship is kind of interesting uh, for reasons you'll know in a while. We don't know a lot about Mildred Doran, Dornan, rather, but we do know that this gentleman paid for her college education. And it was Mildred who went to this man and said, hey, like, I want to go on this trip. Uh, I want to fly as a passenger. Can we find somebody Can we find somebody with an airplane to, to do it? So the owner of the oil company uh, went to the local flying circus and found a couple of guys, said, hey, who wants to go? And these gentlemen flipped a coin, and Augie Peddler won, quote-unquote, the coin flip, and uh, he was going to be the guy that, that led this expedition and tried to win the big money. Now, they had trouble getting to Oakland from Michigan. In fact, they were having problems with their engine fouling spark plugs and not running correctly to the point where they had landed in a field, a wheat field of a farmer in California, uh, well short of their intended destination, but the engine was running so badly the plane would not stay aloft. It only got complicated for these people when they went to fix the airplane because they realized that, um, well, Mildred had thrown the tools out. And I mean literally thrown the tools out of the airplane because they were in the way and they were cluttering things up. Yeah, that actually happened. Once they got uh, the farmer apparently to loan them some wrenches and stuff, they apparently uh, put new spark plugs in the engine, made the trip out to Oakland. Now, when they got to Oakland... They, like everybody else, were greeted as rock stars. These were people that were going to do something almost like the astronauts of the 1920s. Another of the competitors, J.L. Griffin and Theodore Lundgren, they were flying a giant plane, an international CF-10. This was a triplane, so a three-winged, three-stacked wings, two engines, big horsepower, uh, Curtis uh, OX engines, which were were like the, the big bad daddies of the day. And they were uh, actually staked by a favor, a famous actor. A famous actor had owned the airplane, and J.L. Griffin and Theodore Lundgren had been hired by him, kind of contracted by him to fly this plane, which had the guy's name painted down the side. This is not a person you have ever heard of before. He was an actor in the 20s that was famous for 20 minutes, and then he wasn't. So with Griffin and Lundgren flying uh, the Cadillac of all these planes, um, they crashed it into the bay about 300 yards away from where they were trying to get, in the San Francisco area. They walked away. They were fine. But again, here's another competitor that is wrecked. And the only reason they lived was because they were actually thrown out of the airplane. This was an open cockpit-style plane, and they swerved to miss another plane. Who knew there was this much air traffic back then? And they were thrown out of the plane into the water, and they watched their aircraft hit the water and sink to the depths of Davy Jones' locker in the bay. The side note to Griffin and Lundgren's story is this. They had stated that their plan was they were going to fly from Oakland to Hawaii, then they were going to fly to Tokyo, uh, then they would fly 4,100 miles to Australia, Borneo, India, Constantinople, Rome, and ultimately end in Paris. These guys couldn't even make it to the airport, and they had already planned a round-the-world trip in an airplane that they had scant few hours flying. Charles Parkhurst, Lomax, and Ralph C. Lauer were disqualified, and we'll talk about how you get disqualified. There was a plane called the Oklahoma, the El uh, El Cantado is another plane, the Pabco Flyer, the Dallas Spirit. Then we had the Golden Eagle, the Aloha, and the Wallerock. So those are all the planes that uh, actually made it. So 15 planes entered only 8 planes actually participated in this event. I talked about a couple of planes being disqualified. Well, how do you get disqualified? So there actually was no FAA at the time of this event. It didn't exist yet. There was no federal aviation administration because well, there wasn't really enough interest in the airplanes at this point to warrant it. It would come soon after. The rules for the contest were made by the National Air uh, the National aeronautic association honolulu chapter so uh dolan or rather dole i should say went to the national aeronautic association honolulu please come up with the specs for this what should we make people do for the rules what should we create here to keep people quote-unquote safe what they came up with was basically uh some minimum requirements for fuel capacity that was really it Uh, They made sure and and mandated the planes held a minimum of 400 gallons of fuel. None of these planes were designed to carry 400 gallons of fuel. So they were all modified to some degree to actually carry that much fuel volume. The other thing that uh, became, uh, let's call it, very interesting is um, late in this game, before the event was supposed to start, like the day before the event was going to start, it's planned to start on August 12th. The um, uh, cooler heads started to prevail a little bit here, and some big concerns began to pop up regarding the quality of the planes, um, regarding the quality level of the people being um, participating in the event. And so, what happened is the Commerce Department, the Commerce Department of the United States, was actually overseeing aviation at this time before the FAA. And they became so concerned that they said, listen, you cannot do this tomorrow. We need to do something to at least quell the fears of a lot of people around this country. we were not sending all these people off to just get killed. So what they came back with was, okay, we're going to postpone the race for a couple of weeks. We're going to do thorough mechanical uh, inspections on a lot of these airplanes. We're going to actually do some qualifying tests. And there was also in the forecast a lot of bad weather. As rudimentary as weather forecasting was in the 1920s, there was a forecast for some bad weather in the coming days as well. So they said, rather than rush it, let's take a two-week delay and let's actually kind of get these people somewhat sorted out in terms of what they can do, what they can't do, who's actually able to go and who isn't. So this becomes an even funnier part of this story because, well, even the people inspecting and or testing these guys had no clue what they were looking for. This episode of the Dorkomotive podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. One of the great examples of just how ill-equipped most of the people, or in fact all the people competing in this event were, to actually go out over the ocean and fly came when the Commerce Department and race officials developed a navigational course that they gave to the pilots and the navigators and sent them up to fly over the city. They would have to fly this course as directed um, in their apparent directions and then come back and land and report back as to the landmarks and things they had been sent to look at. On the first day of doing this, nobody passed. Not a single crew did it correctly the first time, and in fact. It took a week. It took one week to get all the people certified on this course. And you could take the test, if you will, as many times as you needed to to pass. So if we go another step beyond that and human nature being what it is, uh, if you're one of the last teams to pass this thing and you've done it multiple times, uh, who's to say you don't just run up next to one of these other guys and nudge him on the shoulder and say, hey, man, what am I supposed to see when I go on this thing? And you come back and you tell the people, oh, I saw XYZ, and this is what I saw, and everything went great. And they say, congratulations, you're an airplane navigator now. You flew over a city. Now fly over the vastness of the Pacific Ocean. It was so bad that the Commerce Department went to Dole and the race organizers and said, hey, what you guys should do is what Lindbergh did. We should ship all these planes to Hawaii and have them fly from Hawaii to the United States. At least give them a fighting chance. It was just too far down the road. Everything was planned. Everything was laid out. There was no way they were going to do that. Uh, if they had done it, I don't think it would have made much of a difference in terms of the uh, outcome that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. But it would have at least given people the ability to fly in a generalized direction and reach land, not trying to hit the the pin the tail on the donkey in the middle of the ocean with your plane to the island. Of Hawaii, or the islands of Hawaii. Rather, uh, you could have just flown and, oh, you landed in Washington State. Oh, you landed in Oregon. Oh, you landed in Mexico, whatever. Uh, you know what I'm saying. You, you can't miss, as Charles Lindbergh proved, you cannot miss the continental United States as long as you're flying in this general direction. There were also big mechanical problems with the airplanes. Uh, the the uh, Mr. Rand plane that Mildred is going to be flying in with her pals, The compass wasn't working. The compass itself in the airplane wasn't working. They got that fixed. Um, The dire kind of situation caused the government to make some plans. They decided to string out um, ships and or alter some of the shipping routes to put a lot of cargo ships that were heading from the mainland to Hawaii and from Hawaii to the mainland on a specific route. Um, which they believed would allow the ships to relay radio signals. Uh, They could use the ship as distance markers. The planes could actually, as they were flying, radio down to these ships and say, hey, where are you going, what's your heading, what's your direction? Um, And the ships would also be able to respond to emergencies. The USS Langley, which is the only aircraft carrier that the United States had in its Navy at this time, happened to be stationed in San Diego, and they were put on standby in the event that they would have to go and try to do some sort of a, you know, water rescue or a water, uh, search. So we have tested our pilots. We have tested our navigators. We have proven that they are, if nothing else, capable of cheating on a simple navigational test. And we now come basically to race day. Uh, we get into the later part of August and we are ready to kind of turn them loose here and see who is able to make this trip and how it's able to work out. The launching of the planes, the random was done on random order. They were drawn, basically chips were drawn out of a trash barrel, a wastebasket, with each each of the particular teams, each of the particular planes, number was on it. And so if you were drawn first grade, you're the first person out. You're drawn 13th, the 13th person out. Just like a road rally, it would be timed. So if you were the 13th person out and you got there last, but you had done it in the shortest amount of time, you would have been awarded the money. I think at this point, all we need to do is just start telling you how the race went. Uh, we've gotten to this point; we understand the the pure folly of this entire thing, and now we're just going to get the um, <laughs> now we're just going to go ahead and just get right down to the brass tacks of how how cr- crappily <laughs> this whole thing went. And it didn't go bad for Dole, of course. The rich guy never has a bad experience. It just went bad for you know pretty much everybody else that was involved in it. So as the planes begin to take off, the Oklahoma is first off, this plane called the Oklahoma. It leaves the crowd of estimated between 75 and 100,000 people showed up to the airport to watch this. This is 1920s crowd estimation, but long story short, there were tens of thousands of people that came to cheer these people on and watch them fly off into the wild blue blue yonder. The Oklahoma takes off. The place goes nuts. The place is celebrating. Everybody's happy. And uh, it doesn't even get out past San Francisco, Until one of the, or I should say it's only engine, which is uh, a, uh, how should we say, radial style engine. Uh, You know, if you've ever seen an old airplane that has the engine where the cylinders all span out like uh, petals on a flower, that is what this looked like. It's a radial engine. Engines overheating, leaking oil. They come back in about an hour after they leave. They are done. A plane called the El Canto. The second one out. Guns the engines goes bouncing, bounding down the 7,000-foot runway and fails to take off before the end of the runway. It swerves and crashes. The El Encanto is out of the race before it even gets off the ground. The Pabco Flyer, the third plane out, guns the engines, bouncing, bounding down the runway, full throttle, all that fuel on board way overloaded for its weight, takes off, crowd goes nuts. It travels about 7,000 feet, not up, it travels about 7,000 feet in the air before it crashes down and smushes the landing gear, not wrecking the plane, but requiring repairs to be made. This is what's called a Brees Wild Model 5 airplane. Again, you don't need to know what it looks like. You just need to know that it's basically an engine with wood and and a, and a skin made of fabric, trying to fly across the ocean. The next plane out is the Miss Doran. That plane takes off and leaves, flies out of the visual field of uh, the folks watching this happen. So the three people on the plane, they're off, they're gone. They have to come back because the same issue that affected them before in the wheat field happened again. The engine was misfiring, and it was only firing on four out of the seven of these four out of the nine cylinders. So they had to come back and and effect repairs. The next plane, the Dallas Spirit, the plane took off. The crowd goes wild. The fuselage tears open. The plane comes back. Again, not wrecked, but they're going to cost and they're going to lose time. They're going to have to make repairs. Things are going swimmingly, as you can see. Remember that Pabco Flyer? We told you that it flew like 7,000 feet and then whacked the landing gear and, and had problems. Well, they fixed this thing really fast, really fast. The Pabco Flyer juts itself back into the order, and they're going to go next. The throttles go down. The plane goes bouncing and bounding down to the 7,000-foot runway, takes off, and immediately crashes into the ground, destroying itself. Pabco Flyer is out of the race. The Miss Doran. They spun some new spark plugs in it, slapped it on the side, and apparently we're ready to go. There was one hangup, and that was Mildred Alice Doran. The 22-year-old fifth-grade teacher from Flint, Michigan, was standing outside the airplane, bawling her eyes out. The crowd screaming at her to get in the plane. She not wanting to get in the plane. Her crew telling her to get in the plane because they wanted to leave. The whole point of the plane being there was because she asked to be there. So she steeled herself. Said to reporters, life is nothing but a chance, and got in the airplane. Hammer down. Plane goes down the runway. Off it goes. Mildred Alice Doran, her pilot, and her navigator are never seen again. Never seen or heard from again. No one knows how far they got. They didn't have a radio that worked in the airplane. Lord knows they barely had a compass that worked after they fixed it. So Doran, her pilot, and the Navigator disappear for eternity, never to be found again. Next plane up, the Golden Eagle. It's a Lockheed Vega. Golden Eagle takes off, launches cleanly. This was, of all the stuff that had happened so far in the race, the Golden Eagle's takeoff was beyond... The cleanest, cleanliest, nicest one. So the Golden Eagle takes off into the wilderness or into the wild beyond it goes. It's a Lockheed Vega, which is a very famous uh, early monoplane. If you look up a Lockheed Vega, you probably recognize the shape of that one. It's, it's a pretty typical shape, but the Vega was a really great flying machine, but ultimately flawed like so many of these things were. Anyway, Golden Eagle, gone, over the ocean, never seen again. Pilot, navigator gone. Lost to history, lost to the sands of time. So now we get to the plane called the Wallerock, which is a Traveller 5000, and the Aloha. Now remember, I mentioned a Traveller 5000 earlier. That was the plane that our intrepid heroes before the race had flown. That's the style of plane they had flown over. And so the Wallerock and the Aloha are basically the last two planes to leave. And the Wallerock had Arthur Goebel and William Davis Jr. in it. And the great line from Goebel, his quote was, before the race, or actually before they took off, he yelled out, there are but two goals. The Hawaiian Islands or the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Throttles go down, and off goes the Waller Rock. The Aloha was flown by a guy named Martin Jensen. It was navigated by a guy named Paul Schutler." And they were in a Brees Wild 5, name of the airplane, monoplane. So they take off, and they are experienced pilots. Jensen was a guy who actually had his wife uh, raise $15,000 on the Hawaiian Islands to help pay for this airplane. And she raised the money. And so Jensen, a very well-established flyer that he was, um, got hooked up with Schutler. And and this was a great story because Schutler, had no idea who Martin Jensen was, he answered an ad in a newspaper looking for someone who was a navigator. Jensen had fielded this newspaper ad and got responses from, like, Boy Scouts and people who, you know, had just taken a a hike in the woods and knew how to use a compass. And he had taken some of them up for test flights, and they had vomited and gotten sick when he had done stunts in the airplane. So he found Schutler. And Schuettler says, I'll do it. And in fact, Schutler was trying to get involved in one of these planes. He was going to pay $100 just to go on one of these airplanes. So when he was offered this job with Jensen, he jumped at it. So Wallerock and Aloha, the two shining lights of this story, because they are the two planes that made it. Wallerock wins the race. 26 hours and 17 minutes, got the $25,000. Less than, well, almost perfectly two hours behind him was Martin Jensen and Paul Schuler at 28 hours, 16 minutes. They got the $10,000. Jensen apparently, reportedly, truthfully, paid Paul Schuller 25 bucks. True story. He gave the guy, the Navigator, $25. There was another plane that I had mentioned that had a problem that had returned to the airfield, after it took off. There was a plane called the Dallas Spirit. I told you that it took off, and the fuselage was torn. That cloth fuselage was torn. So this was William Irwin and a guy named Alvin Eichwald, Irwin being the pilot, Eichwald being the navigator. So with all the hullabaloo happening and them being stuck at the um, Oakland, California area for a day or two fixing their airplane, all of a sudden, people started to realize, oh, wait, the Golden Eagle is missing at sea. The Miss Doran is missing at sea. Send out the search parties. And on top of that, Dole actually, uh, apparently in a, a moment of guilt, put out a $10,000 reward for anybody that could help find one of these planes. If you could find the plane, fl- find the people and save them, he'd give you ten grand. And then other sponsors stepped up. So it became basically worth $20,000 per plane to go find these people. So Erwin and Eichwald get their plane fixed, and they're like, all right, baby, we're going. We're going looking for these people. They fly out over the ocean, lose radio contact. There is one last radio transmission from them at 9 p.m., the day after the race began. And the radio transmission is Erwin screaming about being in a tailspin they're never seen from, heard from, or really considered again in the history of this event. So Erwin and Eichwald joined the death toll, which has g- swelled to nearly 12 people now, and they joined it by effectively what people believe crashing into the ocean. So how did the Wallarock make it? What did they do differently than anybody else? Well, frankly, they had a plan. They had a high-maintenance program. They were professionals, and they treated this like they should. They flew what was called a great circle route. And when you look at aviation, a great circle route means that when you're flying somewhere across the globe, for instance, a year ago I flew from Los Angeles to Dubai, and you don't just fly straight across. You fly in a great kind of an arc over the globe because, again, uh, despite what some people may believe, the Earth is a globe. It is round. It is not flat. So when you travel uh, a great distance like this, you travel not in a straight line but in kind of an arcing movement. So that was what their strategy was, and it worked. They flew um, at a height of 4,000 to 6,000 feet, basically the entire um, journey. They used a sextant, and they used smoke bombs. And the smoke bombs, they would throw them out the side of the plane, and they would look and see how fast and far and which direction the smoke was carrying. And that would help them with what we would call drift, meaning, you know, your plane is facing west. So let's say you're flying west, but the wind is blowing left to right. And as you're flying west, the wind is pushing you around. If you've ever seen... um, A race car, many of you know I'm involved in NHRA drag racing. If you've ever watched uh, a motorcycle uh, drag racer going down the course, you'll sometimes see the bike facing towards the finish line, but it's being blown left to right in the lane. That's what happens with airplanes as well. Believe it or not, the Wallerock was the only airplane that had a functional two-way radio. There were many airplanes that could send messages one way, but couldn't actually receive messages back. They had a working two-way radio, and they had a backup. The radio failed when they were about 200 miles offshore, and it was okay because they had the backup. They got that one working, and when they were 200 miles away from Hawaii, they radioed the airfield, and they said, baby, we're coming in. We're about 100 and some odd, 200 miles out. We're going to be there at X X time, and when they got there, there were 30,000 people waiting for them. Now, we know they got a $25,000 prize, but like many of the other competitors, they were staked by a rich guy. So the the crew from the Rock, the two guys that flew it, got $7,500 apiece, which was no small payday back then. That was a big hunk of dough in 1927. And the story of the Aloha is absolutely fantastic. And I'm going to get into that in a moment because there's actually a, a later day account of the Aloha's flight that was made by the pilot in the late 1980s. But one of the things I want to... Let's uh, let's kind of clear up a few things, and let's put a bow on a couple of things here before we get into that. The search party that went out looking for the Dallas Spirit, the Miss Doran, and the Golden Eagle was massive. We're talking 42 ships, the aircraft carrier, uh, multiple submarines, merchant ships. Um, it was... It was probably the largest single search effort ever put forth for human beings on the ocean in a non-wartime situation at that point in history, and they found nothing. And the cost of the search was, was faulted by newspapers across the country. Once this word got out with how much of a disaster that this race was and then how much money the government had spent on the searching for it by sending the sailors and the ships and everything after these people, Uh, It was public outrage to the point where the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of uh, dozens of newspapers across the country that was very negative about this event, wrote such an orgy of reckless sacrifice must never be permitted again in this country. Such an orgy of reckless sacrifice. How about that? Those are some words right there. And as you can imagine, Dole uh, began dealing with a very negative uh, sp- spate of publicity after this. He was, um, you know, he was seen as somebody who basically sent these people off to their death and had no real repercussion from it. His father died uh, not too long after this race, um, and some say that his father died, or his father's death was expediated by the stress load of this entire debacle and his company's tie to it. When we look at the methods used, uh, the kind of celebration, if you will, for Global and Davis is what I sh- what I mean to say. Global and Davis, um, they were brought home on the SS Aloha. I'm sorry, the SS Manoa, the name of the ship. It's a, an ocean liner. Uh, they packaged their plane up, put that on board. They were sent back as heroes. And it should be mentioned that Global was a lieutenant in the Army Reserve, Davis was an active Navy flyer as well, and they were also awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1928. Now, Jensen, whose actual race story I'm going to tell you in a couple of minutes here, but Jensen, on September 1st, he flew back. He flew back from Hawaii to San Pedro on September 1st. And um, it was an incredible move because it was until about 1936 somebody else did that. And that was Amelia Earhart did it in 1936. So um, Jensen really was an awesome guy. And Jensen parlayed his celebrity as the runner-up of this event into some interesting gigs he set a record by flying uh solo with a lion um yes one of the mgm mascot lions he got it put it in a plane with this is true story put it in a plane with a bunch of steaks a bunch of meat steaks and then took off from california and the plan was to fly to new york and the first one was unsuccessfully crashed into a mountain in arizona and lived But ultimately, he would complete that trip with the lion in there. As I mentioned, July of 1936, Amelia Earhart becomes uh, very famous, as if she wasn't already, but even more so by flying from Hawaii to California solo, being the first woman to make that trip. This was really, I mean, just an event that um, almost defies description, and... You know, just to put some context into things, as I mentioned before, if you're going to buy a brand new plane in 1928, it's going to cost you about $12,000. And about 5000 of that, of the cost of the airplane, would go into the engine. And the one thing I want to mention here for you gearheads listening is the engines that were used both by the Aloha and the Wallerock and by most of the planes in this contest was actually a really good engine. It was called the Wright Whirlwind and Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, is in the Wright brothers, um, their engines, they were obsessed with making liquid-cooled engines, and the government, military mainly, was obsessed with having non-liquid-cooled engines for a multitude of reasons. They are simpler. Uh, there is no cooling system that can leak. There is no cooling system that can fail. They wanted air-cooled engines. And because the Wright brothers had been supplying the Navy with planes and engines uh, through most of their time as a manufacturer, the Navy went to them and said, Hey, you got two options here. One, you can either um, lose the business of the Navy's contracts, or you can buy this company called Lawrence uh, Aircraft Engine and produce their stuff for us, which they did. So, this company named Lawrence actually built the original version of this engine called the J1, 790 cubic inches, nine cylinders, makes about 200 horsepower, has a four and a half inch bore and a five and a half inch stroke. Very, very reliable engine. And they were built from the early 20s uh, all the way up until the late 1920s. And um, they were produced about four to 500 a year. They're you know, like everything else was back then, effectively hand-built. And they were very reliable if you maintained them. And the Miss Doran, of course, they had the misfiring problem with the, the spark plugs, which was probably because the carburation was messed up. And the carburation was probably messed up because no one was actually maintaining the aircraft. If there were lessons learned by this event in the world of aviation, and trust me, there were lessons learned by this event. Preparation, training, actual skill, the equipment necessary, and a massively grown respect for flying over the ocean were the things that came out of this. There were no government inquiries. There were no um, situations where there was a panel in front of Congress. People didn't do that in 1927. You had an event. Uh, A bunch of people met a watery grave. Some people met a grave otherwise than that. In uh, other methods before the thing even started, but everybody looked at it and said, "Well, you you buys your ticket, you takes your chances, even if those chances were just so foolhardy and dumb." So I mentioned something about Martin Jensen, and I did want to tell this story to kind of close out this this show because Jensen, um, on January fifth, nineteen eighty seven, the L.A. Times caught up with Martin Jensen, and Jensen was writing a congratu- congratulatory letter to Dick Rutan. And uh, Gina Yeager. Now, if you remember back in the in 87, this was when they flew um, nonstop for nine days straight around the world. And it was an incredible aviation feat in much of the same ways that some of these feats were in the 1920s. It was just something that people didn't think was possible, a feat of endurance and bravery and engineering and strength and all that good kind of stuff. So writing this congratulatory letter, Jensen um, was contacted by the, the LA times. Cause they kind of must've dug his name out of the archive and said, Hey, wait a second. Uh, this guy's uniquely qualified to speak on this. And the way that Martin Jensen tells his story is the perfect way to end this show. And I'm going to tell you about it next. Quoting this January fifth, 1987 LA Times piece, we begin, The 86-year-old Martin Jensen knows a lot about guts and the odds of flying. Almost 60 years ago, Jensen was one of the only two pilots to survive the first air race from California to Hawaii in the 1927 Dole Air Derby. Just two of the planes entered ever reached Wheeler Field north of Honolulu, and newspapers across the United States condemned the race, one describing it as, quote-unquote, An orgy of reckless sacrifice, the quote I gave you before. As one of the nation's earliest barnstormers, Jensen did loops and spins for crowds from San Diego to New York as a stunt pilot, even marrying his wife, Marguerite, on the wing of a plane over Yuma, Arizona in 1925. Jensen later taught aeronautics in Pennsylvania, did show flying for the New York Daily News, and the Tidewater Oil Company flew the MGM Lion across the country for the movie studio, and later worked on engineering problems for the Langley and Douglas Aircraft Companies until retiring in the middle 1960s. But Jensen's proudest exploit in the annals of aviation history, one brought back to memory by the Voyager flight and its troubles both before and during its journey, was in August 1927 when he weathered a harrowing 28-hour flight across a foggy Pacific Ocean from San Francisco to Honolulu. For flying enthusiasts, the time was one of tremendous excitement and heart-stopping risks, symbolized by the first civilian solo flight from New York to Europe by Charles Lindbergh in May 1927, for which Lindbergh won the princely sum of $25,000. James Dole, the scion of the Pineapple Dynasty in Hawaii, decided to put the Pacific on the aviation map by sponsoring a mainland to Honolulu civilian race, slapping down $25,000 for the winner and $10,000 for the second-place finisher. Dole publicized his offer in June of 1927, and pilots immediately scrambled to line up for the race. No civilian pilot had yet made the long flight successfully, although two flyers in 1925 had come within 300 miles of the island before having to ditch their plane and float as a boat for the rest of the way. A three-engine U.S. Army craft made the first California-Hawaii flight late June, shortly after the Dole civilian contest became public. Jensen had learned to fly in the U.S. Navy when stationed in San Diego and subsequently, subsequently had been working as the pilot for an inter-island air tour service in Hawaii, making the first regularly scheduled flights from Oahu to the chain's outer islands. When he heard about the Dole's offer, he had to act quickly. Quote, I figured I could make the flight, so I asked Claude Ryan, T. Claude Ryan of Ryan Aeronautical in San Diego, an early airplane manufacturer, to work me up a plane, Jensen recalled, but Ryan couldn't get me one in time. With time ticking away, Jensen learned by chance from a potential competitor in the race that a partially completed plane was available in San Francisco. The would-be purchaser of the craft had put down a diamond ring as a security deposit, but had then forfeited it. At that point, with only about 10 days left before the race's scheduled August 12th start, Jensen had to scramble to get the plane completed. Race rules required somebody proficient in celestial navigation, and because Jensen was skilled only in compass reading, he had to find a navigator in short order as well. Several people applied, Jensen recalled, including a 14-year-old Boy Scout and a 16-year-old girl who thought the flight could propel her into the movies. Jensen settled on a ship navigator named Paul Schutler after Schutler successfully weathered the loops, spins, and rolls that Jensen subjected him to in practice flights in the Bay Area. In the meantime, tragedy struck even before the race, now pushed back to August 16th. A plane piloted by movie star Hoot Gibson plunged into San Francisco Bay during practice. Another known as the Angel of Los Angeles crashed on its way up the coast. A plane christened the Tremaine took off from North Island Naval Air Station in San Diego, smashed into the Point Luma Cliff while flying to get out of a fog bank. Jensen's plane, manufactured by Vance Priest of San Francisco, was christened Aloha, and he had it painted with flashy Hawaiian colors. The pilot sat in an open cockpit in front with a navigator squeezed into a small hole in the tail surrounded by gas tanks holding 405 gallons of aviation fuel. The two men used a trolley line equipped with a clothespin to send messages back and forth. If either failed to notice the communication, the other also had a long stick at his disposal to prod his colleague. At exactly noon on August 16th, eight planes finally certified for the race by the U.S. Department of Commerce lined up at one end of a 7,000-foot dirt runway in Oakland. The first plane, the Oklahoma managed to lift off, but returned with problems. The El Encanto trundled halfway down the strip and cartwheeled. The Pacific Pabco Flyer stalled just after takeoff and crumbled back to the ground. It wasn't too encouraging, Jensen said, vividly remembering the lengthening weight in his own fragile airplane. The next plane, the Golden Eagle, made a fine takeoff. It was seen for the last time as it headed west across the San Francisco Presidio. The Miss Doran also took off safely, encountering engine trouble and landing, took off once more, and would also disappear over the ocean without a trace. Jensen's Aloha was next and made it into the air safely, followed by the Woolerock, whose pilot, Art Goebel, would win the race two hours ahead of Jensen. The last plane, the Dallas Spirit, broke down shortly after leaving the field and returned, taking out the next day to look for the two planes that they had been reported lost. It would become the third craft to be swallowed by the Pacific Ocean. In all, nearly a dozen people would die as part of the Dole Derby. And I knew every single one of them, Jensen said. After his own takeoff, Jensen said that he and Schutler soon found themselves encased in an unending fog. About seven hours near sunset, I climbed to 4,000 feet to try and get out of the fog, Jensen said, because I knew the hazards of blind flying, especially at night in total darkness. But then I found myself with vertigo. That's the condition where a person has a sensation of dizziness and believes he or she is whirling about uncontrollably. Vertigo hampers a pilot's ability to know up from down. Jensen said he went into three violent spins, but recovered each time because of his experience with stunt flying. However, the three instances had left him dangerously low in altitude, and while he attempted to maintain a 100-foot height over the ocean, he realized that a wave had hit the left landing wheel. I put the plane into a steep climb, but as I leveled, we experienced a negative G, and the navigator was barely able to keep himself from falling out of this little hole in the back of the airplane. Jensen kept the plane at a relatively low altitude for the next 17 hours. About 9.30 a.m. the next morning, he calculated that Hawaii should be near, based on a 100-mile-an-hour airspeed and the 2,400-mile distance between San Francisco and Hawaii. However, a thick cloud cover prevented the navigator from taking any readings. Jensen decided to wait until noon Hawaii time, another two hours away, and then make a sighting using the sun, which he expected to see by then. But when we looked at our gas tanks, we realized that the engine pump transferring fuel to the wing tanks had stopped and we were out of fuel in the main tanks, Jensen said reminiscent of a similar problem that plagued the Voyager. Fortunately, I got a hand wobble pump going to fill the tanks. At noon, Jensen and Schutler found themselves 200 miles north of Oahu and quickly changed headings, arriving over Wheeler Field in the middle of the island at 2.15 p.m. My navigator told me, for God's sakes, no stunts when we got over Oahu because we had so little fuel left. We were damn lucky to be there, although I was never scared because if you get scared, you lose your wits. The $110,000 that Jensen won for finishing second ended up with his Hawaiian backers who had put up the funds for the Aloha. I told everyone that I finished second and last in the race, he said with a laugh, but any celebrations by Jensen or Goble, the winning pilot, over making the flight safely were tempered by the loss of life among the other competitors. As word of the results spread, the Philadelphia Inquirer called the race, quote, an orgy of reckless sacrifice. The St. Louis Star had said that Dole had sponsored a death-dealing stunt, and Louisville Time labeled the race aviation asininity. But Jensen said all adventures carry risks, and that the Dole race had pointed up the the need to perfect instruments for flying safely through weather such as fog, and he believes the tragedies during the race accelerated the search for better instruments. Jensen went on to a variety of careers, all aviation-related. The Aloha was sold to a New York businessman, and it later burned in a hangar fire at Roosevelt Field in New York in 1932. And so there is the story of the 1927 Dole Air Race and the brave men and women that attempted to fly from California to Hawaii, some doing it with skill and acumen and preparation and the right equipment, some doing it with such willful ignorance that it's sad to hear their stories, and certainly their outcomes are nearly inevitable. There are so many side stories that could be told. This could be an eight-hour show. Imagine the person that lost the coin flip to fly the Miss Doran. How disappointed they were in that moment to not have the opportunity. How thankful they must have been after learning their fate of their fellow barnstorming pilots. really is something else and a situation that in 2020 probably can't happen again. We look at the space race, the private industry space race that has just recently sent four astronauts successfully to the International Space Station. We did not see anywhere near the loss of life we saw during an event like the Dole Air Race. Those lives were lost during the early era of space exploration. Anytime mankind tries to push itself, tries to stretch its boundaries mechanically, physically, or in this case, in terms of geography it is dangerous. And this is a great reminder of that danger and some of the danger that really in the world of 2020 doesn't seem to exist so much anymore. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive podcast. I'm Brian Loans. I'll be back soon with more history, more gearhead interest, and more weird, wacky stories from the world of mechanics, whether they fly in the sky, whether they drive on the ground, or they spend time under the water. This is Dorkomotive, and I thank you for listening. This episode of the Dorkomotive podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it.